Rarely in Formula One do you find someone who's worked as both a team principal and a promoter. They are two completely different jobs and give two completely different perspectives on the sport. Yet that's exactly what Eric Boulier, my guest this week, has done. So welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson, for a show that sheds light on both sides of the F1 fence. The competitors who spend the money and the promoters who help to bring it in. Now, many of you will remember Eric as team principal of Renault and Lotus before he then became the racing director of McLaren. He resigned from that role in 2018 and switched camps to Paul Ricard, where he's now managing director of the French Grand Prix. And that's not all. There are even more strings to Eric's bow because he started out in motorsport as an engineer and then went into driver management. So you could say he's done it all. And as you can imagine, there was lots to discuss when we caught up recently. Of course, we talked about many of the drivers he's worked with, including three world champions, Kimi Raikkonen, Jensen Button and Fernando Alonso. But there's also the nuances of the teams he's worked for and the challenges they've faced. He's fascinating about all of them. So sit back and enjoy hearing from someone whose experience of Formula One is both wide-ranging and colourful. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Eric, it's lovely to have you on the show. First up, how are you? Where are you? Where am I speaking to you? Well, I'm very well, thank you. And it's good to see you and good to hear from you guys. And uh, I'm in Paris currently. So at the offices of... The French Grand Prix, no doubt. Yes, we have uh, two offices, one in Paris and one on the circuit Paul Ricard. So I'm commuting between both most of the time. Tell us about the French Grand Prix, because there's been no race in 2020. Did you discuss with Formula One about the prospect of a race with no fans this year? Well, we have been obviously in touch with Formula One as early as uh, February and March, you know, and uh, we have discussed with them uh, any kind of scenarios possible up to the point where uh, when the, the first pandemic came and lockdown was put in place by governments, we had to discuss and face obviously some of the decision. First was to, at some stage, was to move the date forward. Uh, to reschedule the Grand Prix and and uh, obviously co- to consider having a Grand Prix behind closed doors. Between all these scenarios, it was impossible for us to host a Grand Prix because we couldn't find a date fitting uh, the French Riviera schedule. We couldn't find a date fitting the schedule of the Circuit Porica as well. And anyway, the sanitary conditions was not uh, the right place at that moment. Uh, so we had to we had to take the difficult decision to cancel. But what's the prospects for next year, 21? Well, 21, you see, we are discussing back to, let's say, normal conditions uh, in an ideal world. Uh, even if, to be honest, the more we go, the further we go into the year this year, uh, we understand the sanitary condition might not be back to normal next year, or at least in the first months of 2021. So we are considering, again, a few scenarios, uh, but we definitely want to host the Grand Prix next year. Would you consider hosting the race behind closed doors next year? This is a difficult decision because, uh, as you know, the Grand Prix model is always involving somewhere, uh, some politic parts. There is obviously a strategy which is to bring the fans uh, around the track and the event. So if we, 
if you if you go for behind closed door, obviously it's a different business model. It's a lot of discussion with uh, F1 as well, because obviously this is not the same model. So you have to redefine everything. God, I really have missed my trip to the French Riviera this year, Eric. We need to get it back on the calendar. <laughs> we, we are, we are, we are, and we will be. Uh, I guess F1 should announce soon the new next year calendar, and you will see we are part of it, obviously. And, uh, and actually, we have a couple of good news to add as well to the event we want to make next year. Oh, go on, pray tell. Tell us now. No, I can't tell you now. So <laughs> even if it's beyond the grid, I can't, I can't tell you everything. You have to wait a little bit. Eric, here's the thing. It's really interesting hearing you talk about life as a promoter because there aren't many people in the world who have been both promoter and team principal, which, of course, you have. Tell us about the unique challenges of each role it's uh, it's a different two different worlds you know even if it's related to racing and to in some way adrenaline if you obviously uh, if you're team principal of a team you know it's uh, it's a it's a lifestyle more than anything else you have a race every two weeks you have to manage two companies one company to build formula one and one company to race formula one and they both have their own codes they both have their own rules if i may say this and and you're part of this uh, you know tornado i would say which start uh, early february and then stop only at the end of the year you know and it's uh, an exciting and sporting challenge uh, every year where you try to compete you know every weekend to find the last tens of performance out of both your cars and your team uh, to make sure you know you, you can uh, you can win a championship being a promoter it's also a, it's also a challenge because you have obviously to build a uh, what is a small company running of the year, roughly 20%. Uh, but during the week of the Grand Prix, we are 1,500 people. So it's a large organization and a large event organization to, to manage. Uh, you still have to deliver a nice product for the fans, for the TV fans, TV spectators. Make sure, obviously, you can fit everybody all together between the teams, from FIA and the fans, of course. And obviously, you... Uh, it's it's a challenge, and you have also your competitors, which are the other Grand Prix. So you always want to compare yourself with the other one and and try to to be better and to make it a better show. How much do you miss the stopwatch? It's been a stopwatch of my life. So you know, at some stage as well, you know, you want to do something else in your life. So it was a good experience in my life. Obviously, I've been lucky enough to uh, to live this life as a team principal, not only in Formula One, also in Formula Two, Formula Three, and. And uh, now I've got all the challenges and uh, enjoy a different life. Now, another man who is about to get experience from both sides of the fence is Stefano Domenicali, because, of course, you were team principals together when he was uh, the boss of Ferrari. And now he is the new uh, president and CEO of Formula One. First of all, do you think Stefano is a good appointment? <laughs> I would say definitely one of the best, if not the best appointment possible, yeah. And what do you think should be top of Stefano's job list when he arrives in Formula One in January? Well, I don't know because I'm not in his shoes first and uh, I have not applied for his job. So he's, he's going to be his own challenge, obviously. You know, he has enough experience now. I mean, uh, he's been running every kind of job in Ferrari, which is the top one. Been a successful at uh, Lamborghini as, a, let's say, a, a proper entrepreneur. So obviously... Running Formula One or running a team is very different. So I think the first thing to not do would be to listen to the team first and consider the business, so F1 as a sports business first and uh, focus on that. 
Well, I think job number one is to ensure we all go to the French Riviera in about <laughs> July next year, Stefano. <laughs> that's, that's I'm going to make sure, don't worry. <laughs> While we're talking all things French, can we talk about Renault and your time as, as team principal there? And first up, can you explain how you made the jump from Gravity, the driver management company that you ran, to Renault to become the team principal? Well, after uh, 10 years running various championship and teams, you know, um, as you said, I decided to focus on developing drivers and helping drivers to reach what they wanted to, to dream for. Uh, it appears that the owners of Gravity also bought Renault F1 and uh, they were looking for somebody new, fresh uh, to manage the team. And, and because I had some experience in the 24th of Le Mans or Formula 2 and other categories, my name came up at some stage and for them it was easy obviously to ask me what to do because I was already working for them. So that was obviously a great opportunity and, uh, and obviously uh, a lot of trust you know, from Gerard uh, Lopez and Eric Lux at this, uh, these days to put me there. And, uh, but they supported me well and, uh, and it, well, it went relatively well. <laughs> it did indeed. Well, look, tell me about, I think 2013 was the best car you had, wasn't it? Do you think... In hindsight, that car was good enough to win the title that year. If we have to reflect back at that year, uh, could have been better, definitely. I think uh, as an organization, uh, we were still too young and not uh, experienced enough compared with McLaren or Red Bull first. At that time, it was Red Bull's, uh, obviously, the, the reference as a team. So we could have done better. Uh, I think uh, you have to put everything in place as well. You know, I mean, the... There is a race on track and there is also a race every weekend between the teams to develop the car. Even if we did well with what we had, uh, we didn't have by far the same level of budget and uh, commitment or capacity of uh, manufacturing parts as Red Bull had at that time. And I think every weekend we were improving, but they were improving at least as good as we were. And, uh, and uh, I don't think the car was in these conditions. The, the car was, a, a, let's say, a championship contender. How difficult did things get? Because I think it was Spa, we turned up and the bailiffs were there. I think to run a team where you're clearly lacking budget, compared to the likes of Red Bull anyway, um, how, how desperate did things get? It doesn't get desperate. You, know? uh, you just do with what you have. Because the danger actually is to go desperate and to overspend. And, uh, and then you compromise your following year. And uh, in the same time, you need to keep your head cool because by April and May, you already start to switch your resources on the following year car. So it's always a balance between how far you want to develop the current car, how early you want to start the next year car. And obviously, there is a budget constraint, even if, like you said, you know, we always stretch a little bit and take sometimes some risk, you know, but uh, it's not being desperate. It's obviously can be frustrating sometimes if you... You work hard, your guys work hard, they're manufacturing 24-7 just to bring the parts, you know, at the last minute of the track, and you know it works, but then you see Red Bull turning up with six-point wing and we have only one, you know, so you're like, well, okay, we did our, our best, at least. Now, look, tell us what it was like to work with Kimi Raikkonen. Genius in many ways, but is he quite a frustrating driver to manage? No, I think they all are uh, different. I mean, they all have their own personalities, and, and personally, I enjoy, I enjoy a lot working with Kim. He's a genius, like you say, he's part of these uh, special drivers. They have been world champions, so they are world champion material, like we say. 
different character and you just need to handle the personalities to get the best out of them. And I think in, in every sport or in every uh, world, you know, if you have to handle a genius, like you call it, you always have to respect some of their own rules if you want to get the best out of them. I love the way you call it their own rules because on Beyond the Grid last year, Kimmy talked about a two-week bender that he went on after the Bahrain Grand Prix in 2013. He reckoned he didn't stop drinking for two weeks between Bahrain and Spain, and then he turned up in Spain and finished on the podium. <laughs> for me, it's normal. Outside, it might look a bit uh, weird, but obviously it's, it's been a joke often, but actually I think it's more true than joke that I often been driving better being doing all whatever I want between the races than if I'm just not having fun and <laughs> and drinks and stuff. How do you <laughs> manage that sort of person? And do you remember that story? Yeah, oh yeah, I remember very well that story. You have first to understand uh, what, what how are they, you know, who are they, sorry, I should say. What have they have been doing before, what they have achieved. You know, I've been lucky to work with three world champions or X1, there is a reason why they deliver the world championship. So you have to first understand their personalities and they all have their little upsides and downsides and, and it's just the way you can handle them. I always give them some space if you want, you know, and, uh, and just agreed on uh, what, what would be, where would be the fence if I message this. So you can do what you want in this space. If you get out of this space, we need to talk, you know. Uh, but that's, that's how I am. Uh, but uh, it worked very well. And obviously, Kimi was, a, Kimi was a special animal, if I may say this. But he, he was an unbelievable driver. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, I did it. Eric, what about Roman Grosjean? He's in the news at the minute because he's parting ways with Haas. How do you look back on Grosjean's career? And why do you think he didn't win a race good question um do you think he's good enough to win a race on oh, the yeah. right day yeah 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 yeah. he's good enough uh he would have he would have actually in i don't remember which year but it was in an upper green 2012 or 13 i don't remember we were about uh, in two-thirds of the race and uh, we knew with the tires deck and because i remember a marushia car broke down and starting to reverse back you know uh and then when you see the car reversing back, you know it's going to be a safety car. And the safety car obviously gives Red Bulls the opportunity to change their tires. And then we, we lost it, you know. But he, he, he could have won this race. And he did enough podiums to show he, he has the potential to win, you know. Do you think he lacked consistency? If you were to say what you needed more of, Roman, if there was one thing, would it be consistency? Definitely, if you are a world champion, drivers needs to have everything in place, if I may say this. And I think Ro Roma has had the capacity to win races. He won championship in every category he's been racing before, you know. So he has all this material. F1 is a little bit more complicated because you need to, you need to handle and to, to, to gather people around you, plus being in the right team with the right engine with, at the right time. But when you are at the right time, you need to make sure you can deliver having everybody around you pushing for you. I think if you look at uh, the years 2012 and 13, I mean, Kimi was special to make the team working for him. And he delivered more, you know, he had more podiums, he had two wins. But Roma was young at that time, you know. And, uh, and uh, I think 
Uh, then also characteristic, you know, I mean, Kimi is clearly, his race craft is just unbelievable. He has his, uh, his talent, you know, in, uh, during the race to control everything. I think Roman needs to, to be more in control of trying to be in control, but the speed is there. And, uh, and obviously he, he couldn't show it at that time because it was maybe too early. And then he went into a team where he had not the capacity to, to be on the podium, but still he did some amazing races with Haas and, uh, and scored many, many points with them for them. It's lights out, away we go. And there's Lewis Hamilton sliding into the wall. And oh dear, Roman Grosjean and Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton all coming to grief at the source here in Belgium. Safety car is coming out. That looks a particularly nasty incident. How difficult did it get with Roman in 2012? When you, I'm thinking of Spa and the accident, and then being rested for a race. You know, did you have to sit down with him and have a a real tête-à-tête with him? Yeah, of course, of course, you had to sit down with him. You know, uh, and a lot of time and many times. And the thing is, you, it's it's where you put your belief and your trust, you know. Uh, I always believe Romain had a special talent. I mean, I, I watched him racing from Formula Renault to Formula 2, you know, and uh, and everybody knew. I mean, that's why he was picked up as well to be the teammate of uh, Alonso in 2009, you know. So, uh, not only me, a lot of people in the paddock knew his raw speed was amazing. And then how he would develop after, uh, depending on his personality. He did the job with us. Because I think uh, when we decided to have Roman and Kimi, you know, in 2012, you know, it was a pairing, a lot of experience, ultra-talented driver uh, with a young, a youngster, let's say. And, uh, and the good thing is, in some way, one was showing the other one. I want to be, you know, they had, we had this evolution between them, which obviously was interesting to see because uh, Kimi didn't want to be beaten by the young kid. And the young kid was doing everything he could to beat the old one. So uh, it, it was, you know, emulating and, uh, and, uh, and it, it's also part of the success of 2012 and 2013. It, both of them actually raised the team up, you know, and, and pushed the boundaries as far as possible, you know, to, to be competitive. Up to the point, you know, if you remember, we had this uh, Budapest, you know, incident where Kimi got out of the pits, you know, and trying to block uh, Romain, you know, and uh, and then that's it. Difficult one for you to manage. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a one to manage. You have two competitive persons, so it's uh, it's okay, you know. I mean, it's part of the game, and it's uh, no, no, actually, it's nice to have this kind of problem. To be honest, someone else I wanted to ask you about, Eric, is Robert Kubica. Great season with you guys in 2010. And then, of course, he had his terrible rally accident. First up, how good is Robert? Or how good was Robert, I think is fair to say. You can't, you know, you can't compare a driver with another driver. So uh, let's say Robert had everything to be world champion one day. If he has the right team, obviously, being in the right place. But he had the talent enough to be, to be there, to be among the greatest is he the fastest Formula One driver you've worked with? No, I will not compare any drivers. You know, they're all different. They all have special talents. Uh, they're all fast, uh, but you can't say one is faster than the other one. I'm not going to let you get away with this, Eric. I'm now going <laughs> to say to you, <laughs> I'm now going to say to you, we've got Boulier Grand Prix, and you can hire two drivers. <laughs> 
that you've raced that you've had on your books uh, in your Formula One career, which two guys would you hire? So if, if you if you put if in your questions, then I would say I would be rich enough to have a A team, B team, and C team, so I can have six drivers. <laughs> okay, and then I can name you the six I want, of course. Yeah, no, no, uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> no, fine. I you're not going to tell me. You're not going to tell me who's fastest. But can you give me two names? If you money, no object. No, you have to. You have to be a. Uh, obviously, the, the the driver of the moment is uh, Lewis. So you have to consider Lewis, but again, it's not only having a driver, it's how you, you set up and you want them to work together. And, and, you know, I could tell you, I want these two drivers because they are, uh, the, let's say the two, one, I believe are the best package. If I may say this, you know, it's uh, those the fastest if you want, but you, you can't put, maybe they don't work together or maybe they, they are going to create some conflict in the team because they all want the attention and, and obviously the support of the team and, so you can't put two names like this you know, on the paper and uh, you always choose depending on the market and the very bit on the market. But no, Tom, I will not tell you which driver I will <laughs> Definitely, there will be, uh, there would be at least one which I've been working with for sure. Back to Kubica and just that terrible rally accident. Can you remember where you were when you heard the news and can you tell us a little bit about the aftermath of what happened next? Yeah, I was having breakfast in London. I remember very well that day and my phone rang nine o'clock. Uh, it was a manager of, uh, of Robert calling me, telling me there had been a drama and a big crash. And, uh, and that day I had 130 calls. Uh, I spent all my day on the phone. And obviously, I flew straight after to Italy to see where Robert was in the hospital. What did you find? Did you understand the gravity of the situation straight away? Uh, not straight away, because the news I had was uh, obviously nobody at the time knew Robert was doing a rally, except his uh, closest entourage, let's say. Even the manager was not, you know, didn't know, you know, what uh, what, what happened, how, how bad it was, and. After obviously uh, I don't know, a couple of hours, when we had access to more information from the hospital, we understood how bad it was, and actually how seriously bad it was, because he nearly died that day. You say that no one apart from his closest entourage knew he was racing, but I'm assuming you knew he was doing the rally. Well, at that time, we, uh, we knew he was doing some testing. We didn't know he was doing that specific rally. Okay, We had a sort of... Uh, agreement if you want but because he also wanted to to live from his patient and to not be bothered being a formula one driver you know that's why he's a secret and the confidentiality was uh, uh, as much as possible kept you know what was your attitude towards him doing rallying and dangerous stuff outside of formula one you know i know there's a um, uh, a lot of important matters in Formula One and in, in racing and sponsorship. And I've always been favorable for them to do something else. Obviously, rally is a bit extreme compared with uh, Formula One. I mean, it's a two different world, two different la uh, driving style. But for me, drivers doing Formula One and doing 24th of Le Mans or, uh, never been a problem for me uh, because I think there is something to learn actually from both categories. And it makes the drivers normally better. And I know there is today with 22 races, maybe 23 next year. You know, it's obviously 
more and more the driver needs to be focused on and, and less distraction because it's obviously the resting time and the recovering time now are more and more important in a Formula One driver life uh, with all the jet lags and everything. So obviously it's going to be maybe less possible to do different categories in the future. I know that Robert to this day maintains that he learned from rallying and it made him a better Formula One driver. Yeah, it's well, I mean, obviously rally is very, it's a big further apart, you know, from Le Mans compared with F1, or, but you always learn something about tires, about grip, or in rally in case, uh, uh, grip condition or grip change conditions, uh, which might help a driver in some situation in F1 when the track is drying or when it starts to rain or whatever. Uh, so there's also always something for them to learn together, you know. But if you do it, do it in a, it's better to do it in proper conditions. And and the example of Robert was keep learning or something from rallying, you know, in a smaller category rally. Uh, it's maybe not sometimes not not a good idea. It was definitely not. You mentioned that you've worked with three world champions. We've talked about one of them, Kimi Raikkonen. Can we talk about Jensen Button now and? Can I just ask, what is his greatest strength as a driver? Jensen feedback, I would say, on top of his obviously uh, raw speed. Okay, they are, they all have a, an unbelievable speed, uh, and I would say the way he can feel the car uh, and and his feedback and and, and the way he manages tires is just uh, obviously uh, outstanding. But it's 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 a bit restrictive what I'm saying because it's more than this, you know. I mean, again, I'm saying these guys, if they have been world champions, it's because they have many other skills, you know. They all have the speed. Uh, they all know when to deliver and how to deliver, and and gathering people around them and make you know it's like channeling the support and the energy of the team, you know, for them to have everything in their hand to deliver, and that's uh, for me. This is what these guys are capable of, you know. So when I mention the other world champion you've worked with, Fernando Alonso, he's got all of those attributes, understand that. But did he deserve to win more than two world championships? He definitely should have and could have. And I use both verbs, okay? Obviously, we, I remember very well Abu Dhabi 2010 because it was our car who stopped him to be a world champion. That could have been an opportunity for them to do. Uh, there was another one later. And I think when I use the word could, it's always easy to give an opinion afterwards, you know. But uh, definitely uh, at that time, they were lacking a little bit of maybe self-confidence in the team. And, and, uh, and that maybe where Fernando could have played a role, you know, uh, which we expect from the drivers sometimes to, you know, appease, reassure people, and boost people around you to, to be self-confident and deliver even higher, better service or uh, to make the job better. And, uh, and I know in Ferrari, pressure, Italian pressure or Italian media pressure is very high. In some ways, the only guy who can help definitely to make uh, you know, everything a little more quieter and, uh, and uh, more self-confident uh, is the driver. What did you make of... Fernando's comments went at McLaren about Honda and you know in a way do you think he orchestrated his own downfall no you can't say that he's just uh, he's uh, maybe the most ultimate competitors you know his life is completely centered around 
uh, racing and being competitive. I think the frustration uh, was just, you know, creating this kind of comments. And because when he joined McLaren with Honda coming back, you know, for, for him was to maybe recreate a legacy, different legacy, obviously, but what, uh, from what Senna has been doing and Alain Prost has been doing with McLaren Honda in these days, 30 years ago. So there was a lot of expectation, I guess. And obviously, not being as competitive as you would have dreamed of, you know, was creating a lot of frustration. And NASA is seven and a half seconds back. We must save fuel. We must target zero. I don't want. I don't want. Already I have big problems now. Driving with this and looking like amateurs. Give me two So it was frustration. There was no malice in what he was no, saying. Not at all. Just born out of, yeah, exactly, why can't yeah. we do this? Yeah, exactly. I think he's, he's uh, as I said, he's the ultimate you know, competitive driver. And uh, he, his life is about racing and winning. But equally, he's not a stupid man. He's one of the most intelligent racing drivers I've ever met. So he would have known that those comments would have been picked up by the media, by other team bosses. Yeah, of course. I'm sure. I'm sure he knew what he was doing, if I may use the expression. But uh, in some way, you know, it's, you know, it's all these comments, you know, have been done after a race, after, if you remember, a lot of uh, expectation even from himself from, from this race, you know, and... Uh, and even if you know if he knows what he was doing, I think typically you know I mean some, sometimes frustration is just uh, you know pushing you to do something you know which is not what you want to say maybe but but it's part of the frustration and uh, I think of the ambition he had you know to really 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 do well with uh, uh, McLaren and Honda. Are you surprised he's coming back next year with Renault? Not at all. I was expecting it. <laughs> really. Yeah, I think he, he went to Le Mans, he won it twice. Uh, he still chased, obviously, the Indy 500 uh, for the Triple Crown, but but he's not uh, fixed on that, you know. I think he still wants to deliver and to enjoy some challenges. You understand now that, obviously, it's a time when you're racing at the top of your game. It's different, but uh, I'm sure he can surprise a lot of uh, people still. And when you look at the progress Renault have made this year, do you think we could see Alonso on the podium next year? I wish, to be honest. It would be good for uh, both Fernando and, and first uh, Renault, you know, for the hard jobs they have been doing. And you never know, you know, I mean, obviously, from, uh, from one year to another, obviously, we saw them having a setback in Portugal, you know, so there's still a few things they have to sort out in-house and definitely with the car. But uh, I think uh, if they keep pushing and keep doing what they're doing, they will uh, be regular top three, you know, in, uh, in not so long. Now, there's one more driver I wanted to ask you about, and that's Stoffel van Dorn. Is he better than he was made to look alongside Alonso? He's definitely a very good driver, okay? Uh, very fast. And he was uh, the way he dominated F2 and, and uh, Super Formula even, you know, it was very good for him. I think he came at the time in Formula 1 where the, the car was not at its best, the team not at its best, and he had a very, very solid teammate, you know? And, uh, and it's not easy to obviously deploy your wings uh, when you have Fernando next to you. And is Fernando quite political inside a team? Did he make life difficult for Stoffel outside of the car? Not necessary. He doesn't need that. Uh, he's obviously self-confident and talented enough. And, uh, uh, you know, every driver, obviously, as part of trying to gather people around him, 
uh, he's always trying a little bit of uh, political tricks, you know, to get uh, attention, but not not to the point where he's trying to disturb his teammate. Let's say. While we're talking racing drivers, Eric, how would you rate your drive in the Ford car <laughs> <laughs> at Brian's Hatch last year? Your race debut, no, no less. Happy with myself because I started very, 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 very fast. I, I would say maybe the best progression is a year. It was me. Uh, but if, if I was a team principal of the team, I would have fired me straight away. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't Brian's a great racetrack, actually? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a challenge, obviously. Can you imagine a modern Formula One car going through paddock? It would be insane, wouldn't it? Yeah, at the same time, I'm not sure I would. Uh, you always have to think about the safety as well, you know, and... Uh, it would be risky to have 20, 20 cars these days with the level of downforce and grid they have and the speed they have now, uh, which is amazing. You know, and uh, you, fortunately, there is some safety you know, procedures and protocols and the FIA, I'm sure, would make it safe, you know, but uh, yeah, it would be a challenge. So look, we've talked drivers, we've talked French Grand Prix, we've talked Renault slash Lotus. Did also want to ask you about McLaren because you were uh, the racing director there when you were um, in charge of, I suppose, uh, Fernando Alonso, Jensen Button, Stoffel van Dorn, etc. How do you reflect on your four years at the team? My biggest challenge ever, an incredible experience working with amazing and uh, talented people and uh, obviously approaching Ron Denis. Martin with Marsh was obviously a people which I was following since I was 14 or teenager. A great organization, maybe a bit too big these days, but uh, uh, which, or at, actually at that time, maybe uh, lacking a little bit of flexibility. But uh, it was, uh, yes, my biggest challenge and maybe one of my obviously best experience. Despite the lack of result, obviously, it was frustrating to work so hard and to never been able to put everything together at the right time but uh, some of the projects we are running was uh, too young uh, or not mature enough and uh, and I think a little bit of more time would have would have uh, definitely paid off you know but uh, it is what it is you know but uh, definitely uh, I gave it all for four years and it was yes an amazing experience you mentioned Ron Dennis it was Ron who asked you to go to the team wasn't it yeah let's say I signed my contract with Ron let's say let's put it this way and uh, it was there was a few other people involved in the discussion but uh, Ron was the one who made me sign my contract yes what was it like to work with Ron could you see the strengths that had made him the success story and McLaren the success story that they turned out to be well straight away when you when you meet the man you he's obviously transpiring you know this we say this in French maybe it doesn't work in English I'm sorry but you know, you it makes you feel, you know, the intensity and his competitiveness, you know, and then you realize why uh, McLaren became what it is today, straight away. Is there a story of him showing you around the factory? And did he take three hours to show you around the factory? Yeah, I was impressed to be honest. And uh, he asked me to come the day before I was supposed to start on the Sunday. I arrived thinking I had to be dressed like McLaren style, you know, with a tie and a suit. And he said to me, no, we don't wear a suit on Sunday. <laughs> no, we don't wear a tie on Sunday, sorry. Uh, yeah, and he took three hours of his time to show me uh, everything. And, uh, and I think you could feel his uh, pride, obviously, to have achieved this kind of, obviously, it's just amazing headquarters. 
And obviously all the story of my parents through the boulevard, you know, so which is uh, quite quite something, you know, and uh, also the gallery when you can see all the trophies and everything. So, and his passion for technology as well, you know, which uh, he wanted to share. And how aware were you of the sort of political environment that was created there that ended up with Ron leaving? Well, uh, I was just, you know, obviously you do your job, uh, you're in contact with most of the people, so you, 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 you hear some stories, you're not obviously part of the full-time boardroom, so you don't know everything else, or you don't know everything. But uh, clearly you, you, you can sense when something is going wrong, so you can start to ask. There is some rumors being fueled by him and her and whatever. But uh, then, yeah, you just follow uh, as much as you can. But it's, uh, it was a little bit far from my world. And why do you think it didn't work out with Honda? Why didn't McLaren give Honda more time? There is many reasons, to be honest. And uh, I, I can't come back on it now. It's not my duty. You should ask people in place there. I think, you know, the, let's say the timing wasn't maybe the the right wine and uh, created some frustration and made, made many reasons you know I've been uh, I've been behind some of them I know some of them obviously uh, I can say or can't say but it's not up to me to say what happens or what happened you know it seems to me your time at McLaren was right team wrong time is that a fair assessment uh, I don't know if it's fair uh, it's definitely an assessment because when I joined, <laughs> when I joined, there was a lot of a lot of changes which uh, was had not been uh, asked or signed or orchestrated by me. Obviously, and new things, a lot of change, and uh, I had to deal with obviously a lack of maturity of the poor train and a lot of things, you know. So, so, but uh, still, it was uh, yeah one of the best experiences in my life, if not the best one. Since 2018, what have you been up to? We've had. French Grand Prix, obviously, but I've got a whole list of things on this bit of paper in front of me. You've gone back into driver management. Tell us about Adrien David. Adrien is a young driver, obviously, which uh, uh, came to find me uh, to ask a little bit of advice. So I will not say I'm back in driver management, but more in uh, driver support, let's say, or driver development. Talented young kid, obviously very young. Uh, he's been the Formula 4 champion last year. French Formula 4 champion last year, sorry, and the youngest champion ever in the Formula 4 series. Uh, he's now in a Formula Renault, uh, being uh, one of the Renault F1 Academy driver. So obviously not only me, sees a lot of potential in him. And uh, he's now going through his learning curve, you know. One of the most exciting young French drivers, would you say? Yeah, but of course I have to say this. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, it's uh, you have to see. You know, I mean, the drivers you can't, uh, you can see if, if he has some potential early days, uh, but you need to see how then he's going through the lag, and how he develop himself. You know, and uh, you need to give him a few years, especially when he starts so young. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? What's happened within French motorsport for there to be quite so many young? talented French drivers coming through because we're going through a, a bit of a golden age now. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's always, you know, it's a cycle, part of a time period. So go-kart racing is cool. Uh, good the professional in, ra- in, in karting who can teach the kids how to race well. We first started with a, a federation which is actively, you know, supporting the youngsters to uh, practice, uh, which is important. Uh, then it's a good step to have this uh, Formula 4 series, 
which is a federal series. So uh, I think this is the cheapest series you can find in, in Europe, but it still gives you a lot of experience and exposure. And the fact, you know, then you have teams like DAMS or ART. Uh, they are very good in teaching drivers uh, how to deliver, and that's why they have been so successful in these last, last years. And don't forget Renault, obviously. Uh, having some reference in Formula One as a team, as an engine manufacturer, uh, supporting driver, having an academy. So it's, it's all these uh, puzzles. You know? When it's all together, you pick up the young talent, you create the interest for the youngsters to come in, and then uh, they can find a path to go there. You know? So this is still a very active you know, in France. Yeah. Now, another thing I know you're involved with, when I say Morand, have I pronounced that correctly? Yeah. Well, be careful with how you say it, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> or is it Morand, maybe? Yeah, Morand, <laughs> But yeah. it's a hypercar, which is, I think, based in Switzerland. Tell us a little bit about it and whether we're going to see it at Le Mans. Is that the aim? Uh, no, the aim is to make, uh, to create, you know, a, a new hypercar company. Uh, first of all, we have developed, uh, running through this process, you know, we have developed uh, a new technology, which we are now patenting. Uh, to have a smaller, higher uh, energetic energy storage pack. And this is a technology we would like to obviously also maybe commercialize through other applications in the future. And then, yes, we are trying to build up this uh, project to run, you know, a very exclusive supercar, hypercar, with my partner being based in Switzerland, in the Fribourg Canton, having this uh, Fibrax fiber bodyworks which makes the car more uh, ecological or ecologically friendly you know and uh, and uh, working obviously on a two two kind two kind you know which is a full electric car or a hybrid car but uh, it's a road car it's not a racing car at all you know we definitely want to develop uh, let's say a small exclusive swiss manufacturer and can you tell us what's under the bonnet other than the, the energy storage, how many horsepower are we talking? Well, we are talking about 1,000 horsepower for the hybrid version and uh, maybe 1,500 for the full electric one. Oh, wow. 1,500 horsepower. <laughs> yeah. Performance-wise, you know, it's obviously... Uh, we have hired people with F1 and Le Mans experience with us, so we are also very driven by racing and technology. Uh, but we wanted both our cars to have a, a range of around 300 kilometers, rather than five to Venice. This is a target, which is uh, the length of a Formula One Grand Prix. We wanted the car so to have uh, hypercar performance. So it's like uh, zero to 200 kph in uh, less than 6.2 seconds. Top speed, we don't know yet. The aerodynamic will, uh, will tell us, but we know it's going to be above 380. Uh, so yeah, so it's a uh, hypercar, uh, but so a car which you can drive every day, uh, or you could drive every day, but you can also drive it through cities you know if you have to drop your kid at school and then go and have fun you know but uh, it's trying to make uh, you know in this world coming up you know uh, people who love cars and love driving sometimes you know their cars are high performance cars there would still be people like this who will to have this you know so to make something very exclusive where you just enjoy driving your your car now if you were still attending every race for McLaren, let's say, or, or, or Lotus, Renault, would you have stumbled across this program? Would you have had time to do it? Or is this an example of, 
you know, life outside the Formula One paddock? Yeah, I think it's more life outside paddock. You know, if you have to commit to, let's say, the team principal role in F1 team, you know, you would have enough time to do anything else because you have to be uh, committed. 22, like I said, 23 races. It's taking a lot of our time and our life, so difficult to commit. But but trying to help anyway, and uh, uh, you can still, you know, advise, you can still guide, you can still be connected and still help the company to develop with obviously uh, contacts and other ideas. It sounds fantastic. So, Eric, just in conclusion, are we ever going to see you back working in a Formula One team? Or is that period of your life done now? Uh, you can't say, never say what's going to be tomorrow, you know. But uh, today I'm, I'm busy enough, to be honest, with where I am and what I'm doing. So uh, just can keep pushing, you know, what I'm doing and I want to make it a success, you know. Well, Eric, best of luck with that. Hope to see you at the Riviera, on the Riviera, should I say, next year with the French Grand Prix. Many thanks for your time. Thank you, Tom. Will we see Eric working in a Formula One team again? Maybe, although he seems happy with his lot on the French Riviera. I particularly love Eric's recollections of his days at Renault and Lotus. There was the despair surrounding Robert Kubitz's rally crash in 2011, followed by life with Kimi and Roman Grosjean at Lotus. And I thought it was really interesting that he played down the team's financial woes of the time. And what about those four years at McLaren under the tutelage of Ron Dennis and with Jensen and Fernando as the drivers, two great champions. And there's no doubt that Eric's got a fascinating book in him as he clearly wasn't quite ready to open up completely about those experiences. Eric, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. Now, as ever, let's have a quick look through the virtual mailbag to see what you guys have been saying about the show. And you appear to have really enjoyed last week's podcast with safety car driver Bernd Maylander. Joachim Franosch got in touch to say this. Wonderful podcast with Bernd. So great to hear from all sides of the sport. Right from the beginning of the episode, I wondered if I might have been able to apply for that position. But hearing that he simply got asked out of the blue makes the whole story so much better. Yes, Joachim, it appears to have been right place, right time for Bernd. But don't forget that he was a very quick driver in his own right and deserved that phone call from Charlie Whiting. And Gallant Lee said, A key reason why Beyond the Grid is in a class of its own among all the Formula One podcasts, crikey, thanks, Gallant Lee, is that it connects us with the unsung heroes of Formula One. The safety car is arguably the most prominent yet mysterious car in the Formula One paddock. So thanks, Tom, for the amazing story of Bernd Maylander. Well, thanks for listening gallantly. And any car and driver combination that's led more than 700 laps yet hasn't won a race definitely has an air of mystery about it. And finally, let's go to mjol82, who says... This was one of my favourite episodes yet, and being a Formula One fan in America, it is such a pleasure to learn more about the inner workings of the greatest sport in the world. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks, mjol 82 and glad you enjoyed the show, and equally glad that you think F1 is the greatest sport in the world. We couldn't agree more, and we're delighted to bring you these stories. Thank you. And if you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend? Or better still, leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And don't forget that if you'd like to hear your message read out on the show, you can drop us a line on Twitter. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. 
We love to hear where you're listening and what you're doing at the time. So thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>